Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 195 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Finding Purpose, an interview with Nick Tarinsky. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, this is one of the guys we wanted to get on the podcast for a long time because he is one of the people that has been sharing the worst parts of his experience. Most people on Instagram will take pictures of themselves at good moments, take pictures of themselves in their bathing suits, but not Nick. He's been willing to be vulnerable and raw in a way that has been very powerful. And we wanted to share his story with our community. Rich, Nick was one of the first people we met when we started Tick Bootcamp almost two years ago, and he's inspired me ever since. Nick talked to us about the two things that held him back during his healing journey and how he overcame those obstacles. Nick also talked to us about many tips and tricks he's learned throughout his Lyme journey. Matt, Nick is a very deep thinker. He's a philosopher. And he talked to us about some really important concepts, the most important of which is purpose and making sure that you are finding a purpose. So Matt, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce Nick Tarinsky to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Nick, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor and a, and a privilege. Thank you. Well, it's an honor and a privilege for us to have you. Uh, we've been big fans of yours, at least on social for a long, long time. And we've uh, tried to get you on for a while, but I know you're a busy guy with a very busy uh, podcasting uh, schedule. So um, as sort of the, uh, the unofficial philosopher of the Lyme community, we've been very anxious to have you on. And uh, I know folks are going to be really excited to hear some of your deep insights. So Nick, why don't you first talk to us about uh, where you are currently living and where you grew up? I currently live in Eugene, Oregon, and I was uh, born and raised in Pullman, Washington, which is right on the border of Idaho. Okay. And Nick, talk to us about your childhood. Uh, what was your childhood experience like? What was your educational experience like? And what kind of activities did you participate in, uh, of course, before you had gotten sick? I um, had a really good childhood. Um, you know, I was raised on, uh, on sports. I was a basketball player my entire life. Um, we did outdoor activities. Uh, my family was very big on not spending money on material goods, but spending money on experiences, journeys, and trips. Um, so we were, we were always camping, uh, hiking, you know, uh, snowboarding. So just really, really active life. Um, but, you know, luckily my mom and my dad always, you know, emphasized the mental and spiritual side of life. Um, you know, my dad was very good at, you know, I was a really good athlete, but my dad was very good uh, about perspective and, you know, basically telling me I'm not special just because I could shoot a ball through a hoop. And, uh, but yeah, just really, really active um really good home life uh you know my, my mother became schizophrenic when I was 14 um that was uh, kind of a big hurdle in my life um but other than that it was a really really great upbringing and yeah it was uh, lots of outdoor activity and physical exercise and fresh air so Nick what was your educational experience like meaning in the community where you grew up in was did you receive a really solid educational experience and an enriching educational experience yeah so P Pullman Washington is actually Washington State University um, and so it's, it's actually like, it's usually like the top three public high schools in the state. Um, so yeah, it was, a uh, you know, I was always, I always excelled in school and it was, um, it was a really good public education in Pullman, Washington due to the university, lots of professors, kids. Um, and I, and I love, uh, university towns for me, the thing I love about universities and university towns is people are there to better themselves and improve their lives in some sort of shape, shape or form mentally you know, mentally with the schoolwork, physically at the rec centers. Um, and we just, I mean, we, we literally lived at the Washington State University Rec Center. We would play basketball for eight to 10 hours a day. 
Um, and it was just, it was, a, it, was a, it was a blessing being raised in a small college town where we didn't really have all the bad stuff of the city, but we had access to a Pac-10 university facilities. Um, you know, Pac-10 schools would come play sports. They have big concerts. So, it, I mean, it was a really big blessing to be born and raised in Pullman, Washington. We're actually moving me back there in about six or seven months. So, Nick, talk to us about what you envisioned for your future when you were growing up and having these enriching experiences both um, at home and in your educational environment? Um, so, I mean, my original dream was to be an NBA player. Um, like I said, luckily my dad, he never told me I wasn't going to make the NBA, but he was always really good about saying, you know, your, your mind and your spirit is, you know, what's going to make you in this world. So, I mean, originally I wanted to be an NBA player. And then after that, I like my dream was to be a park ranger. Um, yeah, so my original original dream was to be an NBA player. And then after that, I wanted to be a park ranger. So, Nick, you have a lot of outdoorsy experiences. You said that you had parents who were um, very much in support of having an experiential uh, upbringing, uh, and you were living in a community where you had a lot of outdoorsy experiences. Uh, tell us what you knew about ticks and tick diseases, either from your educational experience at school or from any cultural experiences you received through your family. I unfortunately didn't know anything about tick-borne illnesses until I, my, I figured out when I started doing my research on my symptoms when I was like 26 or 27 and the Lyme disease kept popping up. That was actually the first time I was ever really introduced to it. So Nick, you went on to college and you majored in environmental science or in, in environmental science. So talk to us about where you went to college and what your major was. Yeah, so my, my undergrad was environmental science. I bounced around a lot. I originally moved down to Oregon and worked in uh, hotels for a year. And I got my residency. And then I attended uh, Portland State University in state, Oregon State. And then I went back to University of Idaho to finish up uh, my undergrad in environmental science. So you went to three very good schools and you were you were majoring in environmental science. So is it is it um true that you knew nothing about ticks and tick diseases despite going to three very good colleges and majoring in environmental science? That is correct. There was no mention of it, of Lyme disease, ticks, or anything in, anywhere along my journeys of education. Now, Nick, you were also planning at one point in your life to become a park ranger. During any of the work that you did to prepare yourself for that career, did you ever learn anything about ticks or tick diseases? No, and like now that you mention it, I look back, it's pretty astonishing. No. So now, Nick, you, you then went on to graduate school. Talk to us about where you went to graduate school and what your major was uh, in graduate school. So I went to graduate school at uh, Portland State University, and my major was uh, Geographic Information Systems, uh, which is more or less digital mapping. And uh, I, re I really like mapping. It's, you know, it's similar to art a little bit. There's an art to it, and it's uh, a very visual thing. And like I said, so basically my body was given out, and I still didn't know what was going on. I just knew I had to do something where I, well, you know, my legs were just in so much pain and swollen all the time. I, I knew I had to do something to basically do a sedentary job where I could support myself. So Nick, talk to us about when your symptoms first started to present and, um, and what impact those early symptoms had on your life. Okay. Um, well, there, like looking back, there was two, there was two spells when I was a kid that I got, I had issues, but we didn't know what it was. 
but that mo- most of the time when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I was very healthy. So I basically got really, really sick when I was like 18 years old. Um, so I moved out of home. I moved down to Portland. Um, and then basically I got a, I got an injury playing basketball and I hurt my leg and it just, I, I think due to the, the change in the diet, the stress, and the injury, it was basically the perfect storm for it to take a hold of my life. And then basically I started getting vertigo, um, really bad joint pain, loss of coordination. It was basically like I went from like being able to dunk a basketball to like I could barely get off the couch. So, Nick, we talk about immune disrupting events on this podcast a lot. It's one of the things that we learned from Dr. Bill Rawls. And in many cases, what happens is somebody is managing the various uh, pathogens that are in their system when they get bitten by a tick. And then there's an immune disrupting event that will cause their immune system to lose the ability to manage these pathogens and the Lyme will take off. Do you believe that's what happened with you at that stage in your life? Yeah, I believe it was the trauma from the change in the diet, the stress of my mom's mental illness. Um, I think were big traumas for me. When you say changing your diet, what was the nature of the change in your diet and why did you make that change? Um, well, I just moved out from home and we, I mean, I was raised on super healthy food and I just kind of started eating out all the time. Um, you know, it's being an 18 year old kid and I, I, you know, I went from super healthy food to eating out. I mean, I still ate healthy ish, you know, I ate healthy three, two or three times a week, but I went from a very healthy home, homemade diet to eat, eating out. I would say eating out, were you eating like fast foods and just sort of eating the kinds of things you shouldn't be eating or uh, was it something different than that? Not fast food all the time, but just eating out. And like I said, I just went like homegrown garden food to eating out. It's not as good of ingredients. So talk to us about what those early symptoms were like and how did it interfere with your life? I mean, it completely completely and utterly changed my life. Like I said, so I went from being super physical um, to be able to dunk a basketball. And then I more or less, I I was on my couch for like three months. Um, I had about $12,000 saved up luckily, but I had to quit my job. Um, And I just, my my vertigo just kept getting worse and worse. Um, I was dizzy all the time. Um, Had to look at the floor. Otherwise I'd I'd feel like the the room was spinning. Um, So, I mean, it, it completely, you know, it, it stopped me in my tracks completely. Now, did you treat with any doctors when you had this crash? Yeah, so we went to doctors and they, what they blamed it on, they blamed it on a leg length discrepancy, which is, is crazy because that wouldn't, you know, it made no sense with the, the vertigo or the dizziness, but they, they couldn't figure it out. So they, they assessed me with a leg length discrepancy and they put like a three quarter inch um, heel lift in my right shoe and told me to wear it all the time and that just compounded everything just made everything worse so they treated this very classic set of Lyme disease symptoms with giving you a lift in your shoe correct and what was the purpose of giving you a lift in your shoe what did they say that would do for you that it would correct my leg length discrepancy that was causing my balance and coordination issues and my joint pain so you're on the couch for three months and they diagnosed you with a leg length discrepancy? That is correct. So talk to us about how that three months ultimately came to an end. And did you go back to having a relatively healthy life after that three month window? 
No, I didn't. Um, so basically what I did was I would shuffle a block. So, so like for two, three months, I really couldn't do anything. I was, it was like a flu to the extreme. And then after that, I would shuffle like one block. I would shuffle two blocks. I'd shuffle three blocks. You know, and I got up to the point where I'd walk a couple miles. But it was all with my head down. I couldn't walk without looking at the ground. My proprioception was all jacked up. Um, but then I just kept building on that. And then I would, you know, I'd walk a couple miles. And then I started adding the pool in, you know, stop playing, stop playing basketball, stop doing all the stuff that was hard on me. And I basically turned the pool into my temple. And uh, yeah, with the, the pool and just walking and slowly pushing it. And, but no, my life was never the same. I was in constant pain. I mean, I pushed through it and I got to back to the point where, um, you know, I could work again in restaurants and stuff. But I mean, I was just in constant pain. My joints were swollen. And like I said, I basically had to look at the ground, you know, to, for my proprioception to work. And at that time, did you know anyone who had been diagnosed with Lyme disease? And did you see any similarity between the behaviors and the symptoms that you were dealing with and other people who may have had a Lyme disease diagnosis? No, at that time, Lyme disease was a, was foreign to me. I had never even heard of it at that point. So now talk about how your, your life was different and how your symptoms progressed from that moment in time where you had three months of essentially disability and laying on the couch and not doing much else. Can you say that one more time? Sorry. Can you talk to us about how your life changed after that three-month window when you're unable to leave uh, the couch? Oh, I mean, it was huge, but I mean, I, I think, you know, for me, I try to focus on the positive and the opportunities. Um, so I think the biggest thing was, you know, it forced me to do some deep uh, self-cultivation. I had some, uh, some deep, severe emotional and spiritual problems um, with my mom's mental illness. And so, you know, it, it, it forced me to no longer run from my problems. Um, and that was the start of the, my healing process for my mental and spiritual issues with my mom. So I think that was the positive, um, but I mean, physically just, you know, shut down and severely depressed. So like you said, you were dealing with, with uh, some emotional and spiritual issues. What do you mean dealing with them and how were you growing emotionally and spiritually during this window of your journey? Well, so like I said, it forced me to deal with them. I was, a, I was an alcoholic for like a long time and basically once a week I'd get super drunk, I'd get into fights and I would self-destruct. And like, so looking back at it, it was my way of staying close with my mom. She was the matriarch of our family. And like I said, she got mentally ill when I was 14. And that basically threw me into a downward destructive spiral. Like I said, looking back at it, removed from the situation, it was my way of staying close with her. If once a week I self-destructed, like if I was doing too good, I felt like I was leaving her behind, you know, that's kind of what I deduced when I was out of the situation. And when I was just laying in the, laying on the couch, you know, there was no distractions. I couldn't go out. So, I mean, I was completely and utterly addicted to exercise. I would, I'd run, I was a valet. I would run cars for eight hours. I would go to the gym. I would lift weights. I'd play basketball. I mean, I basically would fill my entire day with physical exercise. And if I wasn't exercising, I was getting stoned or drunk. And so it basically it stopped me in my tracks and forced me to take inventory and start dealing with some of my stuff instead of just filling my day with physical exercise and distraction. 
So Nick, let's focus on that because you had this immune disrupting experience, but it sounds to me that there was uh, a lot of other unhealthy experiences that were going on, meaning you weren't exercising to the point where you were, you were healthy, you were exercising to the point where you were consistently breaking your body down and not getting any rest. And you seem to be engaging in these sort of self-sabotaging type behaviors. And that seems to be the sort of the environment your body was in at the time that you had the immune disruption, which resulted in your crash. Yeah, correct. I, I was definitely, and that's the thing, like I look back at my life, um, my, the way I lived my life would have been hard on a normal person's nervous system, let alone someone dealing with neurological Lyme disease. So my, I mean, I basically pushed and pushed and pushed so hard to the point where I can completely and utterly shut myself down. So Nick, let's talk about how you changed physically. You were an elite athlete. Uh, you were a great basketball player. what did you look like at that stage in life versus how was your body beginning to change as your Lyme symptoms were progressing? So I lost, I would say 40 or 50 pounds due to Lyme disease. And right now, so I'm, yeah, I'm about 40 or 50 pounds under my, my weight that I was when I was 18 or 19. So Nick, you, you didn't receive your diagnosis for Lyme disease until you're 26. So talk to us about how your symptoms develop between the time that you had your first crash and you were stuck on the couch for three months to the time when you finally get your diagnosis at 26. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, so like I said, so I basically just slowly kind of worked my way out of it a little bit, just like I said, by shuffling, you know, in, in, you know, cause I'm, I'm big on incremental stuff, you know, cause I'm an athlete. So like I said, you know, incrementally, you know, one block, two block, three blocks, getting up to the point where I was a couple miles and then basically, you know, just, I was just always in constant pain and I was always dizzy and I was always looking at the ground. And, and honestly, one of the hardest parts about looking at the ground is it's, it's impossible to have any confidence. And I was, and then this is one of the hardest things about this journey is like, I was raised to thrive and be confident. And then here I am just using all my power just to look at the ground to walk. And so basically, I mean, it was every day was just a struggle and it was just the determination of will to keep going. So Nick, during this time before you got diagnosed, was there anything that you found that would help you with your dizziness or your inability to, to move your, your head around? No, nope. I, I honestly thought like I, I'd done too much drugs and alcohol that I, I didn't, that wasn't like kind of what I can attributed it to because, you know, they, they didn't even mention Lyme disease. I didn't even know about it. I thought maybe I'd done too much drugs and alcohol and like my brain was fried out. I, you know, that was kind of what I thought. So give us an idea of, of the time frame from the time you first started getting your symptoms until the time you got diagnosed. How many years was this? Like eight, eight to 10 years. And throughout this eight to 10 year window, nobody ever suspected Lyme disease or tick-borne illness or anything other than this, this leg syndrome and potentially psychosomatic. Yeah. And then that, that was the thing they harped on a lot since my mom, my mother's mental illness, they tried to say it was psychosomatic. They tried to say I was developed schizophrenia because that's what she has. She has she's a schizophrenic. And so, yeah, there was a lot of blame on that. So talk to us about how Lyme finally came into the picture when you got your diagnosis. So for me, I, I kept Googling loss of, uh, loss of coordination, joint pain, and vertigo, and it kept coming up Lyme disease, and it kept coming up. And then I, I was seeing a chiropractor, and I went into him, and I said, I think I have Lyme disease. And he said, no, there's no way. You're too healthy. And this has been a reoccurring issue throughout my journey is the way that I hold myself, my spirit 
and soul. I don't relinquish my spirit and soul to the disease and people can't really comprehend how sick I am. So, you know, he said basically, no, there's no way that you're functioning at this level with the with Lyme disease. And so I did my research, I found hygienics and I said, you know, please sign the paperwork, you know, and he said that it's going to be a waste of money. I said, that's, that's fine. Please sign the paperwork. And he did. And it came back positive. So do you think that all of these things together really prevented anybody from wanting to listen to you? So you mentioned that you had a really good mindset and they said, you're not that sick, but you were really sick. You had vertigo, you could barely move your neck and it was interfering with your daily life in such a way that it was, it was a life changer for you. So why do you think these doctors are telling you, Hey, Nick, you're not that sick. Um, cause they didn't, they didn't know cause they didn't have the answer and doctors don't like it when they don't have the answer. It was a way of dismissing you rather than really addressing the root cause of the problem. Yeah. And then, and then trying to validate themselves as a good doctor. So now you push through this hygienics test, they caution you against it and it comes back and, and was it just a Lyme test or were you running co-infections as well? Um, it was just Lyme at first. And when the, when the test came back positive, this was through your chiropractor? Correct. I'm curious to hear what your chiropractor said when you got the results. Something along the lines of like way, way to stay on your own health or something like that. So now I'm, I'm sure at this point he would refer you to somebody else to now get the proper treatment for Lyme since it wasn't his specialty as a chiropractor. Correct. So what doctor did you find next? And, and talk to us about that journey with your doctor now to finally address the Lyme disease. Okay. So I saw a, a man called Dr. Newman in Vancouver, Washington. Um, he's dead now. Rest in peace to his soul. Um, my first, it was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster. So once again, um, they didn't believe that he couldn't comprehend how much I could push through things. So he underestimated how sick I was. He started me on three antibiotics and then Plaquenil. And then basically I lasted a month and it gave me a severe seizure. And then that's what originally put me on my walking aids. And then the thing that was really disappointing to me is I was on no prescription pills at all. And he told me he wanted me to put on, put me on two or three and basically said that, you know, they would get me better and they'd take me off. And he didn't like force me, but he said he highly recommended it. And then, so basically he put me on two or three uh, meds that I wasn't on for symptoms, gave me a seizure, and then he ended up dying like three or four months later. Do you recall any of the three antibiotics that he described you, what they were? Um, so like I said, I remember Plaquenil, and then I want to say it was, what was it? I think it was, you know, minocycline, I believe was one of them. I, I can't remember the other ones. It was too long ago. So Nick, you said something that when you went on this medication, you had a, a seizure. So was this the first seizure that you ever had as a result of taking the medication? Correct. Yep. Looking back now, what do you think triggered that seizure? Do you think that your body was just so sick and you treated too aggressively and therefore your body became toxic from, from the kill protocol and that resulted in your body having a seizure? Yes. So if, if I did it again, I would probably, I would go super way slower um, one, one at a time, instead of taking, um, you know, I think doing a rifle instead of a shotgun approach, because who knows which med did it or what. So, you know, they gave me four meds at once instead of doing one at a time. Yeah. If I, if I did it all over again, I would uh, treat way less aggressively. And I, I think keeping your spirit and your soul and your quality of life is imperative in a long, long journey, like chronic Lyme disease. So you also mentioned, Nick, that it affected your walking when you took this medication as well. So give us an idea as to how this impacted your life even further when it impacted your walking from these medications. 
Well, yeah. So like I said, I mean, it gave me a seizure. My body just shut down and like, I basically fell over on the floor and I drugged myself to bed with my arms. I believe I stayed in bed for like two or three days. Um, we got the antibiotics out of me, obviously. And then it calmed down a little bit. And that's basically, then I started using a walker, um, shuffling around the house in a walker. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, I was never the same after that, that first seizure, it really damaged me. So I, I, at that point we let, we let Dr. B for a while. Um, and then, then I got myself back in the pool and we just started rebuilding myself. And then I, you know, I got back to my pool routine and I think we took about six months to a year off of treatment just to get myself stronger. And like I said, rebuild my spirit, my soul, and then get back to my pool routine. And then we actually tried a natural therapy in a Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I think it was Dr. Smith. He's a chiropractor and he does the magnetic treatment. Um, and he supposedly cleared me and then, but that, that didn't work for me, unfortunately. So it was a natural magnetic treatment was what we tried next in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And it did, didn't work out for me, unfortunately. So a couple of follow-up questions on that, Nick. So when you say we, and you keep referring to we, is it, who was helping you at this time navigate your health? My, my family and I. So you also mentioned now the magnetic therapy. So is that is that bioresonance? Is that the type of natural medicine you're referring to? Yeah, right. And then he, and, you know, he did the um, and he did the whole uh, muscle testing and told me he had he cleared everything and he said that, you know, he was trying to tell himself how awesome of a job he did. He said he got it out of my heart. That would have killed me. Basically, you know, I, I I'm not a big I'm not a big fan of the muscle testing. Like I I don't ever really want to be muscle tested ever again in my life. To be quite honest. So when they did muscle test you to determine what was impacting you and then to determine that you were Lyme free, what was the treatment? It was, were they tinctures of, of various herbs? Well, no, he was, he was just basically placing magnets on certain parts of your body. And what, what's the idea behind that, Nick? So is the idea that these magnets are going to kill the bacteria because of, of the magnetic wave and, and the frequency? Yeah, but I also think it, I think it was, it was like supposed to be awakening your immune system too, I believe. But this did not work for you. And, and in fact, it sounds like you continue to decline as a result of this treatment. Correct. It did absolutely nothing for me, unfortunately. It was basically $5,000 flushed down the toilet. But it was, right. it, was a, it was a good trip going back home and seeing Lake Coeur d'Alene. So talk to us about now you did this treatment, you're spending all this money, and you're working with your family to try to figure out how to improve your health. What do you do next? I mean, at that point, I'm just, you know, I'm pretty extremely frustrated, but um you know, at that point, I'm just grateful. I mean, at that point, I'm really grateful for the pool. And then I think for me, anytime I'm frustrated or dealing with things, I try to be as proactive as possible. So I focused on my pool routine, going to the pool six days a week um, and doing what I could to build myself up. And, you know, looking back, the pool kept me out of a wheelchair and, you know, the pool will get me out of this wheelchair too. So how long ago was this when you got your diagnosis? Oh, so 14 years ago, 14 or 15 years ago. And talk to us about how your health either improved or declined now that you were using the pool, the bio, the bioresonance failed. It was still going down. Um, the, it, I think it, you know, the, the pool, yeah, without the pool, I mean, I can't even imagine how bad I was, but no, my, my joints were becoming more and more swollen. The vertigo was getting worse. Um, the loss of coordination was getting worse. I mean, basically without the support of the water, I mean, I could, you know, it was getting really hard. So why do you think the pool was such an effective strategy for you? 
Yeah, I mean, low impact, gets the gravity off you. Um, it really helps out with your lymph nodes. Um, and I mean, yeah, for me, it was just the only place I could do with any sort of confidence I could walk without feeling like I'm gonna fall over. And, you know, try to, and I just did lots of range of motion exercises. And I mean, I, I think the pool can pretty much shave anyone if you, you know, I, I, at there's certain points, like right now I'm not strong enough, but if you're strong enough to get into the pool, I believe you can pretty much rehab almost anything. So Nick, did you do anything else throughout your the last decade plus of your treatment journey that was beyond the antibiotics, the magnetic therapy? Did you do any herbals or any other sort of alternative treatments? Yeah, we, we played around with herbs um, a little bit, but not very much. Um, and then so now, yeah, we played around with the herbs a little bit. And now we're back to antibiotics and a little bit of herbs, but mostly antibiotics has gotten me the most success recently. So from an herbal standpoint, were there any herbs that you felt were helpful in your journey? I mean, I think Bacopa, Bacopa, I think might be, is probably the most helpful, but that's like for uh, cognitive and uh, really helps out your cognitive ability. Bacopa is a good one, I believe. So for those that are listening and are struggling with brain fog and the cognitive decline that comes with Lyme disease, Bacopa would be a good recommendation for an herbal treatment to help combat that, it sounds like. Yeah, and then I think, yeah, for people with uh, cognitive issues, I think the biggest thing that helped me is uh, the Walls the Paleo Diet. It's W-A-H-L. She's a doctor out of uh, Iowa. She had MS and she cured herself with diet. Um, I've been on the Walls Diet, Walls Paleo Diet for about two or three years. It's basically just a lot of uh, uh, organic vegetables uh, or, you know, organic meats and lots of really good fats. Um, I really believe that is probably one of the most advantageous things to my mental function and cognitive abilities that there is. So that, that Wall's paleo diet will help you with cognitive, but also is part of your healing journey in general for Lyme disease. Correct. And I mean, everything starts and stops with your brain. And so, I mean, if you can get your brain healing, you know, I, I think, so I think the Wall's paleo diet you know, the getting up to the therapeutic dose on antibiotics. And I think another thing that really helped me was uh, transferring to breathing through my nose only. Nick, I want to get to a couple of things you're talking about. I just want to catch up with your, your current healing journey at the moment. Were there any other herbs noteworthy to recommend to our listeners that you felt were helpful in your journey besides Bacopa? I would say Bacopa is probably the most helpful for me. Okay. Maybe, uh, maybe like valerian root, I guess. And what did valerian root help you with? Anxiety. And then I, I, honestly, I mean, for me, if you want to talk, like, I think CBD, um, I do a lot of CBD. I think CBD is the, mo is the best thing there is for symptoms that's non-pharmaceutical, in my opinion. So I think that's, that's a really important topic, Nick, is, is anxiety and, and allowing your body to sort of calm down when you're so overwhelmed from chronic Lyme disease. And many people get prescribed these addictive medications, which again, I, you know, you need what you need. And, and I think there's a time and place for all medications, but do you think valerian root is a good first step for somebody struggling with anxiety before stepping into the pharmaceutical world to give that a shot to see if it can help them? Yeah, for sure. Cause like the one thing they don't, like my issue with the pharmaceutical world is I don't really believe most medicines do anything past a couple months, you know, and then, and then they basically, people get confused. So if you get, if you get out of medicine and you you become dependent on that, you feel bad when they take you off of it, if you don't taper off correctly, we get it confused that the medicine's doing something that's not doing something that's a withdrawal. And so for me, I mean, they put me on Phenitone for seizures. I was taking three seizure pills a day. I've gotten completely off that. I'm feeling better. I've gotten completely off the benzodiazepines, you know, completely off those feeling better. 
Um, you know, I, I was never, I was only on opiates for like a month or two. That was, that was one of the, I felt the worst I ever felt when they had me on opiates for a month or two. And that was just a very low dose. And so for me, like I said, I think they don't really explain to people that, like I said, I don't think there's certain medicines, obviously, you know, that but in my opinion, most medicines after a couple months, they're not even doing anything. You just become dependent on them and you feel horrible if you don't take them. So based on your experience and your journey, Nick, what tools have you felt were the most appropriate to actually help you heal rather than band-aid you or make the problem even worse by masking them with this medication? Tools? Um, well, so for me, getting up to a therapeutic dose of the antibiotics. And then for me, the number one tool for anything in my life is mindset. Um, everything starts and stops with your mind. So Rich is going to get there with you shortly. I just so want to also ask you, as far, as far as antibiotics are concerned, what antibiotics are you on now? You mentioned that they're having a very positive impact in helping you heal. Do you know what antibiotics you're currently taking? Yeah, so we're on uh, Malarone for Babesia, which is not an antibiotic. That's a malaria one. Um, but we're, we're slowly getting off. We're almost off that because we think we have Babesia mostly under control. And then so for Bartonella is the one that we've been going after the next last six months. And so uh, I'm on Zithromax, a quarter of a pill every day. And then I'm on a full pill of Rifampin every day. And so when I originally started taking Zithromax for Bartonella, I could barely tolerate like one sixteenth of a pill. I mean, it, it put me in the ER and then, you know, then we stopped and then, you know, it, it was, it was brutal. The Bartonella did not want to die. Like I could literally tolerate just like a, a speck of it would just throw me just completely out of loop. You know, and then just slowly, slowly going very, very slow and steady. Eventually, it just started wearing down, and then I could get up to the therapeutic dose. So, Nick, do you think that the current treatment that you're on, the Malarone, the Zithromax, and the Rifampin, have allowed you to come off of the benzos, the seizure medication, and the opiates that you were taking? It's sort of allowing you now to actually heal instead of put the Band-Aid on, in, in your words. Um, yeah, for the most part. But I started getting off a lot of those even before I got up to the therapeutic dose. But you were but, you were you were still working on gradually with the, with the three drugs that you're on today, correct? Yeah. So I, I do want to touch on two other things before I hand it back to Rich. And the first one is you, you talk about breathing, and we've learned recently that breathing is such an important technique to calm the mind, to calm the nervous system, and even detox and remove toxins. Talk to us about your acknowledgement of breathing through your nose only, and how you feel that's been helpful in your healing journey. Oh man, it's crazy. So I, I read a book, uh, Breath, and so. It, it, so I'll, I'll give you a, an example. It's, it's a pretty powerful story. So when I was in that moldy apartment, so I, I had a broken nose a couple of times. So I had a devi deviated septum. So it was, it was kind of hard to breathe through my nose already. And then when I was in that moldy apartment, my nose completely and utterly clogged up on me. I couldn't breathe through my nose in that apartment. Um, and so basically, uh, yeah, so I started reading that book and I just slowly every day I would just force air through it and then over time it just started opening up and then I would just keep forcing it and forcing it and then now I'm to the point where I never breathe through my mouth and and then a, a, an example of how so for anxiety panic there's nothing worse than for anxiety and panic than breathing through your mouth so I think it was about two months ago I caught a cold from a caregiver and my nose clogged up from it um, and so I went to bed and I laid down and I couldn't breathe through my nose for the first time since I was in that moldy apartment. And my body instantly went into fight or flight, like instantly. 
And then I just sat there and I told myself, I, I, I breathed through my mouth for like a minute and it, it, my brain was just freaking out. And so I just, you know, I used my mind and I just calmed myself down and I just was forcing the air through my nose. And I finally got a tiny little, little sliver to come through. And then my brain instantly calmed down and I just kept working that little sliver until I opened my nose back up. But it was, it was crazy. I instantly went back into fight or flight when I could not breathe through my nose. Is there a special technique that you use, like like deep breaths or or cycles, or is it just simply breathing through your nose alone that has helped you? Um, well, yeah, I mean, just being conscious of breathing through your nose. But for me, so the perfect breath is five and a half seconds in, five and a half seconds out. Um, so I do a lot of that. And I also do like box breathing, um, four seconds in, hold for four seconds, out for four seconds, hold for four seconds. And I work up to like 10 seconds. Um, so box breathing helps you reset your, your breath pattern. But I mean, I think ultimately just being conscious that you breathe always through your nose and working up to the point where you can do five and a half in and five and a half out. And then also just slow, calm in and out. Not to, like you can, you can force the, the exhale, but the inhale just to be slow and calm. And like a lot of the things they teach about breathing is actually incorrect. So Nick, when did you learn that you had Babesia and Bartonella as well? So the first test you mentioned was just through Hygienics for Lyme. When did Bart and, and Babesia come into the picture? That was probably about three or four years ago when we joined up with my current Lyme doctor I'm working with now. Do you think one of the reasons you didn't heal or one of the reasons that you were being held back from healing is because traditional antibiotics don't treat Babesia and you needed some sort of anti-parasitic or, or anti-malaria drug to help treat the, the Babesia? For sure. I mean, like I, we didn't get any improvement on anything until we started treating Babesia. That was the first thing we got any improvements on. Um, and then we moved on to Bartonella. But yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it was just too much of a beast. You had to, you have to treat everything you have. I mean, I think, you know, if you're in a fight and you're only looking at, you only know you're fighting, you're fighting three people, and but your brain only knows you're fighting one. That's, you, know, you don't stand a chance in that. You need to understand the complete terrain of the fight that you're engaged in. Yeah, I think that's an important note for our listeners that if, if they are suffering from chronic Lyme and they are treating the Lyme disease and they're not getting better, that Babesia could be a potential problem holding them back. And there are different drugs and therapies to use to treat Babesia versus Lyme and, and Bartonella and, and other co-infections. So Nick, I do want to also, you did mention the mold in your apartment. So when, talk to us about that scenario and how the mold impacted your health. Yeah, I mean, the, and that was, I was just about, yeah, the mold was absolutely horrible. The mold almost killed me. And that's when I basically became completely bedridden um, for two years. So basically, we moved down from Portland, Oregon to Eugene, Oregon. You know, at that point, I was still in my forearm crutches. I was still going to the pool six days a week. You know, my I still had all the vertigo and all the issues, but I could still live. I could still drive. And then I think within about two months of being in that moldy apartment, I developed this humongous vein bulging out my entire torso and my legs just completely stopped working. I did, my body is completely and utterly shut down. So mold, and that's a, yeah, that's another huge, huge, if, if people are treating and treating and getting no results, if you have mold, I mean, that will always hold you back. Mold is no joke. So in addition to Babesia as, as an avenue to look at, if you're not getting better at treating mold, Basically, when you were driving, you were swimming, you were walking with some assistance, and then you went to being completely bedbound because of a moldy apartment, it sounds like. Correct. In, in like a matter of like two months, it, the, the, the decline was like, it was insane. It was great. And it was really hard. I mean, you know, my brother, my older brother was, 
he was riding his bike to and from work, dropping me off meals before and after, and he's just watching me slowly die. And I mean, we're not out of the woods, but I mean, it's, we're in such a better place for me and my family and everyone involved. So Nick, t- tell us how you found out that mold was the root cause that was making you so much sicker when you moved into that apartment. Um, well, like my intuition told me, and then like, I, we, we got it tested. And then that's the thing with these tests, like they're very, they're, um, they're very skewed towards the landlord. Um, so basically we got it tested and it showed up that it had minuscule amounts. They said it was okay. You know, and I, then I just knew in my heart and then I kept talking to my doctor and then I had her test my body. And then basically the one that they sh- was showing up as just a little bit in the apartment was through the roof red in my, in my body. So I wonder, Nick, because, you know, we always hear from people, well, I live with my husband and my husband is fine, so it can't be mold. But I think the fact that you were already compromised and so sick that you were so susceptible to the mold compared to somebody else, that that may be the reason why it affected you so much, maybe not as at high of a concentration that they were looking for and they did the testing. Do you think that that's a possible scenario? For sure. But that's definitely, yeah, I was definitely highly susceptible. But like I said, I did a bunch of research and there's, there's like only a few tests that are super, super expensive. And then all the other tests, they all basically favor the landlord so that they can basically keep renting it out. So what would you recommend for people that think they may be suffering from mold because these tests are so slanted towards the landlord that how would you recommend they proceed to investigate mold for their own health? Test their body. And, and how did you test your body? Was it a, something you can do on your own? Do you need a practitioner to test your body? You need a practitioner. If I, if I remember correct, it's a urine test. You can do it at home. You just have to have a practitioner order it for you. Gotcha. So now I'm assuming you moved out of that moldy home recently. Correct. And it is crazy. The, the day after we moved out, my symptoms improved. Like, I mean, I, you know, yeah, like the day after we moved out, my symptoms improved. Now, I promise I really have two final questions before I give it back to Rich. I know I said that like 20 minutes ago, but the, talk to us about some of, the, some of the things you've learned over the past almost two decades now that you wish you knew back when you first got sick that can help our listeners who are early on in their journey. Um, well, like I said, I think the number one thing, slow and steady wins the race. This is a marathon. Do, hold on to your, your spirit and your soul like no other. Do not relinquish your spirit and your soul. Have a purpose and a passion outside the disease. Go very slow because you can't just vomit and get out. I mean, you, you have to keep the little bit of quality life you have. Slow and steady. Keep a purpose. Keep your passion outside the disease. And give us an idea of the things you're doing now since you moved out of that moldy apartment that you weren't doing when you were completely bedbound, and what you see in the future as far as how you're going to continue to heal and treat yourself to, to continue to get over this chronic Lyme disease. Okay. Well, like right now, um, well, the, the electrical wheelchair changed my life. Um, so when I was in, you know, completely bedridden, now I'm, I'm out of my bed like uh, about four to six hours a day. I'm getting fresh air. I'm getting sunshine. I'm doing my Shigong exercises, which is uh, Chinese exercises in the morning on my upper bodies. Um, now I'm doing isometrics on my legs and uh, we're getting massage on my legs. I usually couldn't even, even have anyone touch my legs without tremoring and shaking. And we're actually going to start physical therapy uh, August 23rd. And then eventually, you know, start physical therapy. And then I'm going to get into the pool and I'm going to get my life back. And then I'm going to go, you know, tell people how to be a positive warrior and fight while, you know, fight, fight the good fight while helping people and yourself. 
So Nick, let's talk about the beautiful elements of this journey because <clears throat> you started this journey out with a very difficult set of circumstances uh, in part because of your family environment, but in part because of the way you responded to that family environment, but you're a very different person today. So talk to us about how Lyme disease helped you to get to the place where you are spiritually and emotionally and how you believe that's an important foundation for healing. Oh yeah, 1000%, I think like I said, so you know, it stopped me in my tracks. It made me no longer run from my problems. Um, and I think the biggest blessing and uh opportunity that came from it like i said it was if you know my whole life you know i think i understood i was always good at school you know understood the spiritual thing but i just like i said it, i i was just addicted to exercise and it is it basically took away the distraction and forced me to do meditation you know and just i, I think just like i said i think the opportunity to take inventory, slow down, reflect, and look inward instead of outward. So Nick, one of the guests that we've interviewed in the past, her name is Lorne Pfeiffer. She's argued that healing from Lyme disease is an engineering problem. And as a guy who has studied science uh, and uh, has a degree in, uh, in the science field, and also as a, as a computer geek, as uh, I've often made fun of you and Matt, um, tell me about your perspective on engineering and re-engineering the problem. Do you think you have to emotionally and spiritually go back to a point where you understood how the disease ultimately progressed in you and then going through the process of re-engineering your life so that you can heal? Yeah, correct. I mean, I think, you know, I think along your lines of talking about re-engineering, you have to, you have to honor the path or the purpose that Lyme disease sets you on. And so, yeah, you have to completely re-engineer your life. You know, you have to make a, your health and your well-being a priority. You have to understand that, you know, you can't just keep driving and driving yourself into the ground. And yeah, you have to basically, yeah, I would agree. You have to re-engineer everything. And then I think that's a lot of things with people with Lyme. I've noticed people get into remission and then they go back to the super hectic lifestyle and they crash themselves. And in my opinion, they are not honoring the path that the universe set out for them. And so, yeah, for me, it completely re-engineered the way I see everything, the way I operate in the world. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, I think there's kind of like a saying from the Dalai Lama, like in, in the Western world, we will spend our entire life making money and then we'll spend that money to try to get our health back. You know, I think it's you basically just following the purpose or the re-engineering path of putting you, your spirit, your soul, and your well-being above, you know, the monetary things and materialistic goods and always just honoring the path that, you know, you have to be gentle and compassionate to yourself and others or you, you're going to go backwards. So, Nick, when we interviewed Dr. Burascano, one of the Lyme pioneers in, um, in our community, he told us that if his patients did not exercise, they would not heal. But I think it's an important conversation about how much exercise is appropriate for healing, because I think you're a model for how 
exercise can become abusive and how that could actually create an environment where you're more likely to get sick. So can you talk to us about the balance that is necessary for you to heal with exercise and how exercising too aggressively can actually create an environment where you're more likely to get sick? Yeah, well, I mean, nothing against that doctor. I'm sure he's a great doctor, but yeah, I, I definitely disagree. Because, um, like I said, there was a point. Um, sometimes your body just needs rest. So when I was completely bedridden in that moldy apartment, we didn't know about the mold, but we just know I was shut down. And then the doctor kept on, you know, trying to get me or not trying. He'd have me do these exercises in bed where I kind of lift my and it, it just it, it just made everything extremely extremely worse. I would just do a little bit of exercise and I would be completely, utterly like in a convulsion fit for like three hours. So basically my body was completely rejecting exercise. So during that situation, exercise was not the key. It was actually the opposite. It was hindering me. And then I, I do believe, like you said, um, in my past, when you're addicted to exercise, that's not healthy. So everything in moderation. And I think there's also times when people are so depleted and compromised that exercise is the enemy, not the friend. And that was the case for me when I was in that moldy apartment, my body was completely shut down and any attempt at exercise just significantly worsened the situation. Of course, Nick, a moldy environment will have, um, will create immune disrupting uh, events for anyone. But when you have a severely compromised immune system, which is being further compromised, unfortunately, by the antibiotics you were taking, it became overwhelming and it made it impossible for you to heal. In fact, it caused you to get sicker and sicker. How mm -hmm. have you rebounded from that first physically and then talk to us about how you rebounded from that emotionally and spiritually? Okay, yeah. Um, so like I said, as soon as I moved out, um, you know, I, I, I got symptom relief. My neurological symptoms um, really calmed down. And then thus, you know, having the, the neurological symptoms calm down, really calm down, um, you know, my anxiety, my fear. Um, so basically, I mean, night and day different. Um, I mean, so like right now, you know, I, I do motivational videos and speeches, you know, I can do them in one or two tries. When I was in the moldy apartment, it would probably take me 20 to 30 tries. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's not even this is night and day. I mean, my, I was, I was really good at pushing through things, but my cognitive ability is so much better. My spirit and my soul, um, so much in a, in a better place. Um, you know, and I think, you know, I'm still working on this. Um, I think so, so mental immunity to me is key mental immunity is you know, how we react to things, you know, there's something that happens, you know, and our reaction can either be based off emotions or rationale. Uh, or, or rational thought. And so, you know, I've been, I've, I've been able to, so you know, I'm sure as you know, Bartonella, I think Bartonella is the ultimate teacher for controlling your emotions. Cause you know, one of the main symptoms is emotional irritability or instability, you know? And to me, it got to the point where if someone, you know, pissed, like if something went wrong and it upset me, I would have a physiological horrible response. And I don't think there's any other better like a teacher to, for mental immunity than Bartonella, where if something goes wrong and you get upset, it completely crashes you. So now, you know, I still have issues when I get upset. It, it's hard on me, but now I'm, I'm able to, to use my rational thought and, um, you know, practice some mental immunity. So like for me, my, my convulsion fits are few and far between, but when I do have a convulsion fit, you know, I, I tell myself, 
you know, hey, that, you know, to, to develop mental immunity, this is a blessing. This means that my legs are still alive and I will get them back. You know, it's, it's something that's not going to overwhelm me. I can handle this. And so basically trying to make peace with things and develop some, some more mental immunity. Nick, what is it about Bartonella that puts you in a position where you have difficulty or a person who has Bartonella will have difficulty with staying in a cognitive thought process rather than an emotional uh, thought process? Well, so for me, the only way I can explain it, so if like everyone has emotional reactions to things that go wrong in their life. But so a normal person who's healthy, or I shouldn't say normal, I should say a healthy person, you know, maybe they'll get a pit in their stomach for, you know, 30 seconds or 60 seconds. I would literally go my legs and um, my legs would just start, I would just go into convulsion fits if my emotions were triggered. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, you could literally yank me around like a freaking puppet by my emotions. Nick, now, despite being really sick for a long time, um, you've decided to take responsibility for other people. And you make all you make a number of different really powerful uh, videos, um, and, and that's what attracted me and Matt to you long ago. We've become big fans of yours because of all of the inspirational work you're doing. So, talk to us about why you feel compelled to help other people in the community when you're having so many difficulties going through your own health battles. Well, yeah. Well, for me, first and foremost, I'm a sheepdog. That's how I was raised. Um, so I feel like it's my responsibility. Not everyone has the tools um, that I was implemented in in my life. And not everyone knows how to how to fight like I do. Um, so I, I believe it's kind of my responsibility. But um, on another note, I think perspective. Um, anytime you're facing hard times, if you can put your perspective to one of compassion and empathy for other people who have it bad, First and foremost, that gets you out of your self-pity, breaks that negative cycle of self-pity, and our brains will reward us because we're interconnected to help each other. Um, and so it, help, it helps me, but I mean, but ultimately I feel a responsibility because I, like I said, I, you know, I do believe in uh, a path and a passion that was picked out for me, and I have to honor that. And I'm, I'm not going to lie, there's days where it's hard, um, and sometimes I want to shut it off, um, but I feel, like I said, I feel obligated. And for me, as long as I have, I have a rule. I mean, I don't think it's negative if we're talking about a problem, if we're trying to solve it. But if you're coming to me for self-pity, no, I, I don't do that. But I, I'm all for solving logistics, but I'm not, I'm not here to give pity to anyone or I, or I don't want pity myself. So Nick, you've put up some really raw videos. Uh, you've put up videos when you, when you were convulsing, when you were seizing. Talk to us about why you were willing to be that raw and that open with folks who you've never met. Well, to be quite honest, we didn't, at that point, we didn't really know. I mean, I always knew I was going to make it. I always knew in my heart I was going to make it and I will make it. Um, but, you know, my parents, my, my family was concerned. My friends were concerned that I wasn't going to make it. And I didn't want it to be for nothing. And actually, I came across a really good, um, it, was, it was really hard at first. I'm not going to lie. It was hard. Like, I would post those and I wouldn't interact with them for a couple of days because it was so raw. Um, and, but I came across a really good concept of, I was reading a Warren Buffett book and he says, humility is disarming. And I find that to be utterly true. Um, so at first, like I said, it was really hard, but if you're willing to put yourself out there in a vulnerable compromised position, you, you'd be surprised. You're going to connect with people. You're going to relate with people and you're going to help people. 
And I try to encourage people this all the time. Just stop putting all your wins out there. Stop putting your glossy MTV moments out there. That's not how people grow. You have to be willing to invest in loss, pick yourself back up, apply that knowledge and keep going. And like I said, at first it was really hard. I'm a prideful guy, but you know, first and foremost, I didn't want it to be for nothing. And I wanted, you know, I don't want anyone to ever have to go through what I went through. Here at Tech Bootcamp, we define entrepreneurs who are people who accept responsibility for other people's problems. And you've also developed an entrepreneurial pursuit despite being as sick as you are. So talk to us about what inspired you to begin your business and how that has helped other people. For sure. Well, my business um, originally started in 2004, um, but like, so another blessing or another gift from this illness, I started in 2004. I did really good, but then I got robbed. Um, I was selling cannabis like a dummy and I got robbed for all my cannabis and my t-shirt money. So it completely deflated me. I stopped. And then, you know, fast forward 10 or 15 years later, when I got my Lyme diagnosis, um, it basically led me back to my passion of chronic to wear. Um, it, you know, like my dad says, uh, you know, we're, we're uh, Snoop Dogg's a business partner. We do business with him. This would have never happened if it wasn't for Lyme disease. And then, you know, and this is one of the, this is one of the main things I want to tell people with Lyme disease. Like, please, you need to have you need to have a passion outside of the Lyme disease world. Um, and I don't I don't care what it is. You know, if you want to do macaroni sculptures, um, painting, but it just needs to be a long term passion that you can work on. And then anytime those negative those negative loops come, am I ever going to get through this? Am I ever going to make it? Use your passion as a rudder to bring your thoughts back to positive waters. So for me, when days were really bad. I would just lay in bed. So for me, I only, when I originally, I had half an hour a day. Now I have an hour a day to work on my business. But when I'm not working on my business, I'm sitting in my bed. What, what color do I need to change the designs to? What do I need to do to get this project done? Instead of sitting and going around, like, what if I never get through Lyme disease? And anytime my rats start racing, right back to my designs, my passion, what do I need to do? And you just use it as a rudder to break those negative loop cycles. So Nick, let's focus on that a little bit more because one of the things that we spent a lot of time thinking and talking about is identity. And one of the things we've really enjoyed about following you for as long as we have is not only your vulnerability or your willingness to be vulnerable and raw, but also your identity. And you are one of the people who's clearly not taken on the identity of a victim and you've clearly not taken on the identity of somebody who is allowing Lyme disease to define them. So talk about how your passion, the importance of having a passion and having a business has prevented you from taking on this identity of a Lyme disease um, victim. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's all about a purpose. I mean, human beings, that's what we're here for. We need to learn, we need to grow, and we need to have a purpose to the day that we die. You know, and I think that's, like I said, I think that's one of the sad things. And that's, to me, that's what a Lyme lawyer is. You do not relinquish your spirit and your soul to the disease. That's what a Lyme lawyer is, in my opinion. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people, that's what they do. They think, you know, this is it. This is it. I'm going to relinquish my spirit, my soul. The essence of every single human being is our spirit and our soul. You know, I got deathbed perspective in my 30s that I get to apply to the rest of my life. And, yeah, your spirit and your soul, you cannot relinquish it to the disease because that's, that's what it wants. It wants you to give up. and It wants you to feel sorry for yourself. So it can basically run amok and do whatever it wants. And you need to keep a purpose. You need to keep learning. You need to keep growing. And I know that's hard for people with cognitive stuff. And so like for me, I'm, I'm big on reading. Reading breaks the negative loop cycle. But I understand like, you know, if you can't read, positive affirmations. 
I'm healthy and strong. I love myself all day long. Just keep saying it, keep saying it. Like I, you know, I, I'm proud of myself. I'm getting my legs back. I'm healthy and strong. I'm, I'm going to walk again just over and over and over and over again. If you can't read. You have to keep, you have to keep coming. You need to have feedback coming in. So Nick, one of the things that uh, Matt wanted to make sure we talked about today was your Lime Warrior t-shirts and sweatshirts. Matt has purchased many of them and he's proudly wearing them um, on many of our podcast episodes as you are today. So can you talk to us about your, um, your Lime Warrior t-shirts and sweatshirts and how can folks locate you and your business if they're interested in purchasing uh, these powerful t-shirts and sweatshirts that you're producing? Yeah, so I mean, the best way to get a hold of me is on Instagram. I'm, I'm chronic to wear on Instagram, C H R O N I C two, the number two W E A R. Um, you know, it's kind of a you know, so I do cannabis apparel, so it's kind of a mixed thing. Um, we kind of have a lot of Lime followers, and we have a lot of cannabis followers. But like I said, so to me, the ultimate thing for Lime wearers, you do not relinquish your spirit and your soul, and also, like you said, um, you have the willingness an ability to put yourself out there to try to educate, inform, and change the situation so the limeys in the future don't have to be guinea pigs like us. So Nick, I need to ask you now the final question we ask everyone on our podcast. And this is an important question so that folks uh, can help their family members not get infected and prevent themselves from getting reinfected. If God forbid, somebody very close to you, like your brother came into your room at the end of this podcast, and you found that he was being bitten by a tick, what would you recommend that he do so he would not have to go on a difficult Lyme disease journey? I would, um, I would talk to my naturopath and get all the preventative things that I could in place, and I would send him directly to Igenics, um, get tested directly with Igenics, talk with my naturopath, look into any natural preventative things that we could do to get ahead of it and get tested and get treatment immediately if, if it came back positive. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Nick Turinsky. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Nick Turinsky, please visit his Instagram page at chronic2wear, chronic, the number two, wear. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to offer to us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank your community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.